0: Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. A truly special guest today, alive and well and speaking her mind in our control room, Dr. Linda Burghardt, scholar-in-residence of the Holocaust Memorial Tarrant Center. Welcome to Seldom Said. Thank you very much, Robert. I wonder if we can with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, what brought you this time and place?
1: Okay, well, so I grew up in uh, Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan with a lot of other refugee and survivor families. And um, I, uh, let's see where to start. Um, I spent a lot of time here at CW Post. I got my doctorate here five years ago, had an excellent experience with uh, terrific faculty. And I've been studying the Holocaust um, much of my adult life in different ways. My parents are survivors from Vienna, and it's a very meaningful experience to me personally, probably also genetically and emotionally and intellectually.
0: There are those who will say something like the Holocaust is so obvious on the front of people's minds and palate that there really is nothing new to be found. And there are others who will take the position that it's ancient history. It's like the second act of Faust. It's something you would find purely by accident. Do you feel that there is perpetually something new to be unearthed?
1: Oh, yes, I do. Um, In part because human nature is constantly surprising us. And also in part because history has many, many, many layers and we've only um, scratched the surface. And so there's always new information coming out. About a year or two ago, um, it came out that there were several hundred more concentration camps than we knew about. So just factually, more information is coming out. But the way people react and respond and what's happened to people's lives um, since the Holocaust and during the Holocaust, there's always new material and all worth studying.
0: Is there a perpetual drive on your part, something that you've unearthed that you want to really proceed with?
1: I really enjoy finding out um, how people fared during the Holocaust and what made them able to survive. And that's one of my driving forces in studying the Holocaust.
0: A survivor, literally over dinner, once said to me, do you understand, Robert? Do you understand? And I said I understood because I wanted to be a good guest, a sensitive soul. But I don't, and I can't, and I'm not sure I wish to. Because if I truly understand it, then I'm perhaps one with it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that as a second gen, you understand? Oh my goodness, no. I wish
1: I could answer that yes. I would give the same polite answer that you did. But um, no, there's so much to understand. It's like If you go into a a mansion of 30 rooms and you get through the foyer in your lifetime and you understand that, you've made a huge dent. But there's so much more. There's so much more. There's so many um, human components that we don't understand, both among the perpetrators and the victims, or the targets, I should say, and the interactions among them, that um, this is definitely a lifetime of study, many, many generations of lifetimes.
0: Were there ever any conversations across the dinner table with mom and dad? Some inference of what they experienced?
1: Very little. Very little actually said, but um, a great deal implied. And children, as we know, always pick up things that they see and feel that aren't necessarily intended by the parents for them to see and feel. Um, we did not discuss things um, intellectually or educationally very much at home So, no, I wish I would gotten more facts um, growing up, but I didn't. But I learned it um, in school and I learned it on my own and I learned it from finding other survivors, particularly people of my parents' generation who were willing to talk.
0: A friend's mother and father were at Auschwitz and they came face-to-face with Mengele on the platform. And she always, until her last day, would tell me, Robert, I should have asked my mother what she saw, what she thought, what she felt, but I couldn't, and I never did. Perhaps this is an awkward question. If it is, please forgive me for being intrusive. What would you ask your parents if you had the opportunity to be receptive to complete truth? Mm.
1: And if I had the opportunity to get an answer, because children do ask. I asked many, many times until I realized that I was not supposed to talk about this. Um, What would I ask now? I would want to know just what you said. I'd want to know the feelings. I'd want to know how they coped with the feelings of what happened. When my parents talked about Vienna, they, they were young people in their 20s, and they talked about how it was so much fun growing up there and so lovely. And they both pretty much said that they didn't really notice a lot that was going on, which makes absolutely no sense. But it's the way they look back on life. Um, I would want to know now exactly what happened. What did it feel like when they went to the train station to leave Vienna and left um, their parents there and never saw them again? What did it feel like as they traveled across Germany to go to Holland to get the ship to get to the U.S.? What did it feel like when they got here? I'd love to ask. I'd love to have answers. And I can only surmise.
0: It seems the realm of a poet more than a historian. It's a very difficult topic. Do you feel you would find it easier to paint it rather than think it and write it?
1: Oh, well, I'm very verbal I'm, I do everything in words. Um, my husband is a graduate of the Merchant Marine Academy here in, uh, in Kings Point in Great Neck, and their motto was "Acta non verba." And we've been married almost forty years, and we've had many arguments: verba non acta, no acta non verba. So this is kind of a family joke, um, but nevertheless, so I, I wouldn't—it wouldn't work to me to visualize it. Although that's a beautiful thought, and I, many people would think in those pictures but i see it all in in words and to me the words um are are all connected to the the feelings i remember once somebody telling me that language is um is emotion um spread through the air from one person to another Mm -hmm. and it made a lot of sense to me and also there's lily tomlin's comment about language that it was invented to complain so (laughs) there's that too
0: (laughs) (laughs) a little bit of both
1: yes (laughs)
0: A woman who I I would assume we both know, I know that you were present there at the meeting, at the center said that she remembered the marching in Vienna and when she saw Charlottesville, it troubled her deeply. That same woman on an earlier occasion told me that for the first time since the war, she keeps a suitcase packed. Mm. Are you deeply troubled by what you see and hear?
1: I am and I'm not. So on one level, I I greatly believe in the power of the United States. And because the America saved my parents' lives by allowing them to come here, and I grew up in the 60s and had to protest the war with everybody else who I was friends with at City College, where I was a student, um, I always had a huge conflict about it because I love this country. And I feel very protected here. Perhaps I shouldn't. I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm very unhappy with the administration the way it is now. But I feel very safe. On the other hand, I can understand how this woman would feel because Charlottesville was deeply, deeply troubling to me on on many levels. And I just deal with it by reading the news and not watching it on TV because to see that brings you into it. And... It's, it touches something very deep and painful inside.
0: There are a number of laws that have been passed that infer a hidden meaning behind what they qualify and define as hate speech. Many people who are part of this far-right cabal, as exhibited in Charlottesville, argue that this is a free speech question. How do you react to that argument?
1: Oh, very negatively. It's... It's a it's to me a human rights issue. It speaks to the human spirit. It's not I mean, it's dealt with in the world as a legal question because we are a country of laws. But it really has nothing to do with law. That's just an excuse. It's it. It is just it's it's people dealing with people in the most negative way. And I think it's just it's tragic. It's just tragic that this goes on.
0: Many people would be genetically bound or familiarly bound to family members who were in the camps. You seem to have pursued this as a lifelong project and career. Linda, was there an epiphanal moment, that Damascus point, where you said, this is where I wish to go for the rest of my academic life?
1: Well, that's a hard question to answer because people mature and change, or at least we hope they do. And what I found when I graduated from college with a degree, and I was an undergraduate um, English major, um, I wanted to pursue journalism and went into it with the idea of making a contribution to the world, getting my views out into the world, and learning about who people were and what the basics of human nature were. And... I always was extremely drawn to the Holocaust, but was too afraid of it to do anything with it for many, many years. Partly it's because my parents' view of silence around the Holocaust got into my psyche and my sense of how we find our way through the world, which by their definition was by avoiding speaking about terrible things. But as I got older and developed the emotional maturity to understand how much the Holocaust affected my life and how much it matters to a great many people alive today and a great many people who are um, coming to us in the future, I realized that um, I did have the calmness and the perspective to finally be able to engage with it and work on that exclusively.
0: An Auschwitz survivor once asked me through her son to interview her for an article I was writing and then three nights later called me desperately saying she can't do it and then three months later calling me again and saying she'd like to do it. What would your approach be to those who need to get it out but are terribly frightened by opening that door? Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, I mean, and that's that's, um, uh, very difficult to deal with and I think there are different ways of getting it out. Um, I think people are happier when they are able to speak their truth, but they can only speak it to certain people and in certain ways. And sometimes instead of speaking, they might need to paint it or they might need to draw it or they might need even to act it out physically before they're able to put it into words. And so I I think I would probably (sighs) – try to find a different um, medium for that person to express um, her
0: views. At what age do you feel it's appropriate to enter Holocaust teaching historiography into a public school curriculum? Mm,
1: yeah, I, I, my guess would be around the age of middle school. Kids are very interested around 11 and 12 in the truth. They tend to have a very black and white view of the world. Many children who um, grow up to be very um, equivocal about, for example, the, the, um, the death penalty. As, as middle school kids, they're very adamant one way or the other. Um, they see things in a black and white way. And it's a very good time, I think, to bring them into consciousness of um, the the great complexity of human nature and the way people respond to each other and the way this is expressed through nation-states and um, through world powers.
0: You're a historian and historians are facticians. Is there a point in your research, in your thought process, where you parallel, for example, uh, Thomas Aquinas, when asked about heaven and hell, simply said, I take a leap of faith— is there a point at which you simply close your eyes and say, whatever is there, I'm falling into it. I'm not sure what is there, but I'm there.
1: Well, that's a, a wonderful thought. I think it's extremely difficult emotionally to do that. Now, I do have to say, though, that um, I'm not really a historian. I was All my training was in um, journalism. And I wrote for the New York Times for 20 years before I had the moment of epiphany that you mentioned before where, uh, of course, my moment of epiphany was not the Holocaust matters. The moment of epiphany was print journalism is going down the drain and I need a new career. (laughs) And so um, at that point um, is when I decided that I needed some retraining. Um, would be able to um, get into this terrific program here at uh, CW Post um, to earn a doctorate, gain the credential that would enable me, backing up, to um, express my passion, which has been so for such a long time the Holocaust, and um, actually do work in it. Um, but I'm not a trained historian. Uh, there's, there's, there's a big difference in that historians take a very long view of the past and the present and the future. And journalists are much more interested in truth-seeking. And that's always been the bottom line of almost anything I've ever done, which um, uh, intellectually and scholastically, um, but probably was an indication that uh, the stork dropped me down the wrong chimney because I grew up with parents who did not want to talk about the truth.
0: Might we take the position that historians and journalists are sides of the same coin? L'Historia, L'Histoire, telling the story. You're a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Were you always that?
1: Yes, I was always a storyteller. I actually like nothing better in the world than to tell a story. I, I don't think facts convince anybody of anything. I think stories do. And whenever um, I, I write, uh, if I write academically, it has to be very stiff and formal. But I also write, I still write for newspapers. And um, I, I always try to tell a story I, whenever possible, will put dialogue into my articles. Um, I tend to write opinion pieces. I'm not doing um, factual journalism right now. And um, I think that that stories really um, have contained the emotional truth of the facts and often lack – often include what the facts are lacking. Now, in terms of two sides of the same coin, there there is also the idea that uh, criminals and policemen are two sides of the same coin. So, I don't know. That's that's an interesting theory. So,
0: <laughs> Indeed, Linda, you have the right to remain silent. <laughs> 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 We're within 50 seconds of our first station break. I have the feeling this is going to be an excellent discussion. One can tell when you look at the clock and a minute has passed by. When we come back, uh, perhaps we can begin speaking to the definitive trauma of the Holocaust, what makes it distinctively different, and then lead into a topic that relates to your idea of storytelling, i.e., that is a punchline, a laugh, something which puts coda on a very sad moment of poignancy, a chaplainist kind of question, which hopefully I can promulgate when we come back, but we're within 13 seconds. And we'll take our first break. We'll be back in a moment. Seldom Said, my name is Robert.
1: This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato.
0: And we're back again. This is the second segment of our discussion with the scholar-in-residence at the Holocaust Memorial Tolerance Center in Glen Hove, Glen Cove, Dr. Linda F. Burkhart. Dr. Burkhart, uh, excusing, if you will, my grammatical error, if you would uh, describe how the Holocaust is different. It is different, even though I've spoken to a number of academics who take the position that it's not. Different from what? Different from other catastrophic events in the world's history. Different from any other manifestation of the malaise that human beings carry with them from time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Ah, the Holocaust is was perpetrated against individuals, and that's one of the major differences. It wasn't a nation against nation. It was nation and philosophy and um, belief um, against individual people for something about them that the Nazis insisted they could not overcome. For example, when um, Jews said, well, um, I'm a convert, so I'm a Catholic, so why are you persecuting me as a Jew? And uh, the Nazis' answer to that was, you can't overcome being a Jew. You are a Jew even if you have converted. It doesn't mean anything. You are a Jew in perpetuity. And um, there are, of course, there were, of course, and are, of course, many other genocides in the world. The Holocaust um, is unique in the sense that it happened in the country with the highest literacy rate in the world at the time. And those of us who believe in education and in scholarship have always believed in um, the fact that education overcomes the natural hostility and um, aggressiveness of people. And in this case, it was the complete opposite. The education and the intelligence and the training were used to kill people more efficiently.
0: Do you feel that any kind of academic or educational program, Linda, should teach the definition and the root cause for ignorance?
1: Hmm. I guess the purpose of education is to overcome ignorance. But I think, with, as with all educational programs, they have to target the right people. And just like with the people who all visit the concentration camps, it's wonderful that people visit the concentration camps, but we don't necessarily have the right people going there. If we have Jews going to visit the concentration camps, they feel their Judaism perhaps more deeply. But what we really need are people who are anti-Semitic to go and visit the concentration camps and have a sense of what happened so that they're enlightened in ways that they probably have never
0: thought to be. There are some who take the position that there are people in this life, in this world, who can't be reached. I am reminded, as part of this discussion, interviewing an earlier guest a few years back, who was a captain in Mossad, whose wife and he had been at Auschwitz, in the same school setting, was a neo Nazi. Young man called himself an Aryan skinhead. He came up with a t shirt written lies on it, stood at the door and demanded to come in. I wouldn't let him in. The individual, Ben, said, let him in. I want to talk to him. He's a young man. He's malleable. I want to reach out. I'm wondering, at what point does love of my fellow man and appreciation of his conscience Become dangerous naivete. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it, it, I think it becomes that very quickly. Now, I was raised to distrust everyone. And I remember being a teenager and thinking to myself, how will I ever find anyone to marry? Because everyone I bring home, my mother says, out of the house, that person's a stranger. Well, okay, everyone's a stranger. What do you do? How do you manage that? Um, to get to your original question, there are plenty of people who can't be reached, there are plenty of minds that are closed. The, the important thing, though, is that with the Holocaust, there was a mechanism for these people to put their beliefs, if we want to call them that, into action. And if we have a world in which um, we're protected by our countries, which is really the purpose of basic purpose of government, from people having the opportunity to do this to us, it's that's one of our
0: best hopes jefferson often took the position that every generation needs to have a war a war that teaches them the value of individualism freedom representation liberal government are you a believer in the perfectibility of mankind oh my
1: goodness ah uh, hmm I can't say that I've given that a lot of thought. I think that perhaps I haven't given it thought because I don't believe it's possible. Mm. Now, the idea of a war in every generation, though, um, there is something that that I understand about that because having a common enemy does bring people together in the same way that Alan Dershowitz believes that a little bit of anti-Semitism is a good thing for Jews because it gives them something to fight against and for people not to become uh, complacent.
0: A renaissance poet once took the position that the devil's kiss is still a kiss. I wonder at one point, I can embrace that and truly believe it to be true. I wonder if uh, we might segue to the more pragmatic question as to what you do presently at the Holocaust Memorial Tolerance Center.
1: So my my position is um, called Scholar-in-Residence, which is a very lofty name, which I like very much. And um, that means that I do research at the center, and I help coordinate a research program so that other people at the center and affiliates of the center who are interested in Holocaust research have a place to go to um, send their – to comment about their ideas. And so um, I give lectures at the center and I write articles and um, I basically am the person, the go-to person for staff members who are looking to find out uh, various facts about the Holocaust and ways in which their programs can expand on our knowledge.
0: You've engaged in a rather interesting approach to the Holocaust and Holocaust teaching, And that's finding the elemental humor in the worst of provinces and places. Can you give me your definition of what is humorous and what is not? Oh, it's so based on context.
1: Now, the people in the Holocaust who say that humor helped them say that it gave them a reason to live and um, gave them a way to preserve their dignity and also to um, have a connection with each other which um, helped them enormously in staying out of that sense of isolation that most of us feel when we are targeted, particularly if you're targeted for violence. There is um, uh, something that takes over in our human nature that, that tends to separate us from our environment. And one of the ways in which people say they survived through the camps is through maintaining the human connection with other people. And humor was a factor in that.
0: Stan Laurel of the silent film team, Laurel and Hardy, once said that it was incredibly humorous to watch two people walk down the street, as was pictured in many of their short films, and have them fall into an open manhole. But it was horrid panning down into the manhole Mm. and seeing the pain exhibited from the fall. Where is the moral line? That we should draw?
1: The moral line in terms of, of uh, how much we observe about people or about uh, humor itself?
0: In regard to not only what is funny and what is not, but what is satirical and what is not, mm-hmm. and what is painful, what is apocryphal, and what is meaningful, something we can learn from. Because you can learn from a joke. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the line um, is pretty blurry these days. Um, And I'm reminded of uh, a comment that Mel Brooks made um, where he said that comedy is tragedy plus time. And that uh, the further away you are from the terrible situation, the more likely you'll be able to find humor in it and find that people will respond in the correct way, meaning that they'll laugh rather than than be offended. For example, nobody to my knowledge is making fun of 9-11 It's far too recent and far too enormous and far too painful. But uh, Mel Brooks famously in his films made fun, let's say, of the Spanish Inquisition hundreds of years ago. Horrible event. But uh, what he does with it is just hilarious because it's so far away. It is um, tragedy plus time that he's turned into comedy.
0: Your opinion of the work of Roberto Benigno?
1: Uh, Tell me again.
0: Your opinion of his work?
1: Oh, of Mel Brooks? I think Mel Brooks is a, is a comic genius, without a doubt. Um, to my mind, um, his uh, producers kind of crossed the line with his singing and dancing Nazis. And I think that um, in, in the show itself, that when he first presented this as a play within a play, of course, he was presenting satire, he had the audience walk out because they were offended, stand in the lobby and realize that he was being satirical, come back in and laugh hysterically at the show. And the show was supposed to fail. That's the whole point of the producers. And then it's a success because people transcended their sense of offense and saw it as satire and laughed their heads off. And he, the producers in the show made a ton of money, even though they were hoping to make money, run away with the money, have the show fail, and that would be the end of it.
0: Roberto Benigni is often called Roberto Benigno. In Italy, a different aspect of his work, he does comedies, he does gangster films and so forth. What was your opinion of his winning the Academy Award for a satire of Holocaust life?
1: Oh, in Life is Beautiful? Yes. Oh, well, that's, that's very difficult. I found that a beautiful film that was utterly heartwarming in the way that the characters were able to transcend their circumstances. There, There are many views of what level we should live at and whether we should be responding to our immediate surroundings, whether we should be responding to history, whether we should be responding in the global sense to the future. And I found in that film, it was a very, very tiny slice of now, And the fact that um, the hideous world that they lived in was able to be made beautiful for those moments for the child was um, absolutely brilliant and extremely heartening.
0: Oscar Wilde once said the most difficult thing to do was to write and place on paper a humorous anecdote or joke. Jewish humor seems to be lyrical, poignant, storytelling. Is that what drew you to it, as well as many other things?
1: Actually, when you say that, it makes me think of Jackie Mason, because his, his, um, his humor is physical without being physical humor. Like, you talked about people falling in a hole, you know, the pratfall, um, mm-hmm. that type of humor, that's kind of slapstick humor never worked for me. I saw Blue Man Group and didn't laugh. I was the only person in the audience who just didn't find it amusing, and I, it just didn't work for me. Um, on the other hand, um, Jewish humor does involve the, the brain and the emotions and the, the visceral body in that it touches all of you at the same time. And I, I'm sure I find it funny because it's just reminds me of my whole life, all my relatives and all the silly things that happen in one's childhood. It's extremely familiar to me and very comfortable. I also love the satire of it and the layers of it and the fact that it is always about something. It's smart
0: humor. I remember as a child listening to uh, humorous and the Ed Sullivan program and others. They spoke with an accent I remember growing up at the age of five, six, seven, eight, thinking that there was such a thing as a Jewish accent. When it was in truth, an Eastern European accent, there are those who were offended by the accent lending itself to the humor, i.e. Jackie Mason, people like him. Your reaction? Well,
1: to me, accents are are, um, extremely meaningful because I grew up with parents with accents, and they had a lot of trouble with it. um, If I would correct them as a child, they would become furious. No, I, I am saying it right. You are saying it wrong. But I went to school and my teacher said, no, absolutely wrong. So to me, accents have a great deal of emotional resonance. And therefore, when an actor or a comedian uses an accent, um, I either love it or hate it. I have a very strong reaction to it, but I do feel that um, with Jewish humor, it's um, it's something that's important as part of the um, the performance of telling the joke. So I definitely think I respond to it very positively.
0: How would you also, Linda, respond to the issue that Soffman raised that humor is the last re- the last refuge? Of an individual trifling with hysteria. Oh, hmm, well... It's a confession of hopelessness.
1: Uh-huh. Um, mm. There's nothing humorous about hysteria. And I think that hysteria, even though it's considered laughter that's gone awry, I feel that it comes from a different place in us, both physically from a different part of our body and uh, mentally from a different place in our brain and that they are actually two very different experiences. Humor is very uplifting, and humor is um, nourishing and life giving. And hysteria is the opposite. Hysteria is the the first level of that spiral that brings you over the abyss into despair.
0: Humor, then, to most of us who are vulnerable, as many should and would be, humor is the life preserver. I
1: believe so. I believe so. I think there is almost no situation that you can't laugh at and feel um, encouraged by. There is uh, something in
0: this discussion that is intriguing, and that is the definition of what the human psyche actually is and how much we can tolerate and take and whether in point of fact we're totally different when we come out the other side Do you ever posit the question as to whether one can go through an experience as hard as this, as we've discussed, and still be in and as they were when it's over?
1: No, people are are changed, um, but they are only changed in as far as they are able to be changed. I believe we're born with a tremendous range of capacities, and our life experience brings out different parts of ourselves. And we react to uh, people, different people will react to the same situation in very different ways because of who they are inside.
0: We're within 30 seconds of our second break. This has been an interesting conversation. I would hope when we come back, we can talk about specific instances of your research in regard to humor in those dark places, those corners that children hide in in the middle of the night. There is a truth in that that would be worthwhile for all of us. While we're waiting, my name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. We're approaching the final segment of a marvelous program. Our guest, Dr. Linda Burkhart, the Holocaust scholar in residence at the Holocaust Memorial Tolerance Center, Linda, if we could take what we have been discussing as prelude, can you give us examples of humor being used, not only to safeguard one's sanity and balance in times of horror, but also as an act of defiance?
1: There was um, humor in the camps that um, people used in order to um, help themselves stay alive Some of it actually semi-official. In um, Dachau, for example, there were some skits put on. Um, Sometimes the inmates would get together and come up with ways in which they could ridicule Hitler and the Nazis. And they would create performances And they would be clandestine, but there are some documents that say that there were camp guards who actually went to listen and would be laughing as hard as the rest of the people in the audience. And there certainly is quite a bit of evidence that um, in the Warsaw Ghetto that um, th- there was uh, a great deal of humor that was shared among the, the um, prisoners in the ghetto in order, again, to connect with each other and to make their lives um, palatable, more palatable. And apparently a great deal of what they laughed about were food issues because they were all starving and they would get together and they would make jokes about the food that they wished that they could be eating and the ways that they might be able to find it if they were in the outside world. It seems shocking that in this darkest of the dark places, in Auschwitz, for example, or in uh, Theresienstadt, where there was actually, after the war, a cookbook came out that the women in, in, imprisoned in Theresienstadt, where my grandparents actually were— Um, would get together and talk about what they used to like to eat and laugh about how someday they would be back there and sometimes they pretended they were already there making these recipes for themselves. And there was a book published with all of the recipes in it. It's a beautiful book, very tender.
0: There is uh, someone I do remember from childhood I'll even use her name. I'll throw it out there so that if it's floating in the ether, she'll remember that I remember. When I was approximately eight or nine, I saw the numbers on her arm. And she kissed me. And her kiss laughed. Mm. There was something about it. Do you find in this study that this is a normal human reaction, humor in time of trauma, or are these simply extraordinary people?
1: Oh, I think it's an ordinary reaction. I think that people went in as ordinary people and came out as extraordinary people because of their experiences. And I think that humor connects us with each other and that um, the perhaps greatest fear of people who will say their greatest fear is, is death – or public speaking, depending on the person, but with the fear of death that is so um, imbued in all of us, that what is death, if you think about it, but isolation. And humor is one of the few true things that helps us overcome isolation. And so it's just a natural uh, response of people when they're terrified. When they're, if they're able to find that part of themselves that can see some tiny touch of humor to share it with another person.
0: We live in an age uh, of scatological humor, profanities, shock. Is there a place, is there a continuance of that Jewish tradition of sorrow, circumstance, and satire which is historically significant Are there examples that you found in your research today?
1: Oh, many. I mean, there are many ways in which um, people use humor to comment on the world in ways that enlarge our view. Um, There's the old joke of, Groucho Marx, which I always loved. He was the most considered, the most intellectual of the Marx brothers. And he was once asked, "What is a genius?" And his answer was, "What is a genius? It's an average student with a Jewish mother." And so, we're, I'm a Jewish mother. Like I'm making fun of Jewish mothers, but yes, it's it's just something that um, that's in our nature, and it's um, it's a way in which um, people find true meaning in life. And humor is is extremely important. Um, I think in some ways it's being used today in negative ways. And this is something that I've worked on in some of my research about Jewish humor and, and the way it's used in its application to the Holocaust, where we have um, comedians, Jewish comedians like Larry David today and Sarah Silverman, who make fun of the Holocaust and, to my mind, belittle it, sometimes make fun of the survivors, sometimes the circumstances of the Holocaust. And it's an edgy, raw kind of humor that is somewhat popular with many people, but also very deeply offensive in many ways also, and tends, I think, to belittle the magnitude of the Holocaust and the uniqueness of it. And there is a fear that as time goes by and the Holocaust recedes more into the past, that it becomes just something that happened in the history books. And many people like me have this internal mandate to try to to keep it alive.
0: We spoke before the program and you mentioned how children or grandchildren, more properly, of Holocaust survivors are intent on learning do you find that the young want to know?
1: I do. I, I do. And it pleases me greatly because the world is a very big and complicated place now. And there's a great deal of information that's available to people. But I do find that the third generation, the children of the second gens, the grandchildren of the survivors, are very interested in bringing to the fore a lot of what happened and why it happened and how it affected people. And I find that very heartening.
0: We, as said earlier, live in a time where things are confrontational. There's an elemental violence in people's attitudes. Perhaps that violence has been excused by individuals who should be ashamed of themselves for doing so. If one takes that position, there is a marvelous quote from Martin Luther King. He was a Christian man, but he took the position that Christ gave him the message and Gandhi gave him the method. How do you react to those who simply say, we'll wait it out? People tried to wait it out in 1938. Do you feel again returning to that oft-used term It's naïve? Sometimes waiting it out works, and sometimes waiting it out does not
1: work. And who can tell the difference? It's an extremely difficult situation. I mean, Jewish history is filled with um, discrimination and um, violence and attacks against Jews. And many, 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 many times Jews waited it out, and it passed. And in 1938, it did not. So who can look at the future and say, when to wait it out and when not to. That's an impossible question, and I wish I knew the answer to that.
0: I would imagine at some point in this adventure we call life, we'll be able to ask some ethereal spirit what the answer is.
1: Well, that's the only good thing about possibly dying, <laughs> is that maybe you get some answers.
0: <laughs> I'm off time. remembered, though, Linda, about the man who died and asked... The Spirit, what is life all about? And God told him, it's about trust. Is it I've waited 94 years and you tell me it's all about trust? And God responded, You mean it's not?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> My elemental fear.
1: <laughs> now that could be a Jewish joke <laughs> because Jewish humor does make fun of everybody and everything, mm. God included.
0: <laughs> Clinging to that issue. There is a questionnaire put out by the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, 500-some-odd questions. They talk about what kind of an actor you want to be. The last question is, when you reach those pearly gates, what would you like God to say in welcoming you?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, I want to know all the answers. Why are we here? (laughs) What it's all about? Who's in charge? And what else is there in the universe besides what we're able to see? Because there is that whole issue of are we just all together, all taken together, just one organism, like a colony of ants, for example, or are we a shadow of some other larger organism? Are we actually negative space? And we don't know it because... We're all involved with preserving our bodies and our ways of life and our philosophy and, in the larger sense, our religion, our community, and and our nation. But what are we not seeing?
0: One of the open-ended discussions at Vatican II was what does one do if we encounter something out there that looks and feels and acts like we do but doesn't believe a shred Mm -hmm. what we hold to be moral truth.
1: We could tell it a joke, see what happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And have it laugh through its gills, you know. (laughs) Yes. It should be intriguing. (laughs) Speaking constantly, and really, you can't speak constantly about a topic that really is so fascinating. Jewish humor is structured. It lends itself to a literary disposition Have you found the compulsion in your own research to not write biographical treatises of Jewish humorists, but to write their jokes?
1: Yes, writing their jokes, analyzing their jokes, and looking at what actually makes them funny is actually extremely intriguing. And it says a great deal about Jewish culture and the Jewish sense of um, our place in the world and our relationships with each other.
0: Do you personally find it possible to enjoy a comedy routine on the written page?
1: Hmm. I'm not sure that I have ever tried that. I doubt it because so much of comedy is based on timing. And it's even much better in Jewish comedy to see the comedian than to just hear him or her on the radio. So on the written page, I don't think it would work. I think I might be forced to act it out and listen to myself and, and do it that way.
0: There's a quite interesting program. Uh, the leading character is Mrs. Maisel. It's been on Netflix. Mm-hmm. She has a disposition to be humorous and funny. Part of it is her body language. Part of it is the way she tells a story. And part of it is her very breathing she seems to have the essence of humor within her soul and spirit. Do you feel we're all humorous at heart, all actors at heart, playing that role on stage and then exiting left?
1: No, I wish I did. I, I find the show cynical. I'm not a fan. Interesting. I find her phony. I find her vulgarity ridiculous. And I find that they've taken a 21st century woman, a 20th century, a 21st century sensibility and grafted it onto a 20th century woman. And it doesn't work to me. It perhaps works for people who don't know women of the 50s or understand the mid-century culture. Um, But I find that it's, it's just totally made-up fantasy that I don't find amusing. and so. But I don't believe that everybody has humor in their soul. I wish I did because I think it would make the world work much better, but I don't think so.
0: I'm glad you described the program in that fashion, Linda. I watched an episode of it two nights ago with three people, two gentlemen and one of their wives, and the woman said, she's exasperating. Mm-hmm. You know, let's change the station. Mm-hmm. She really felt exasperated by it that mm-hmm. she wasn't being humorous. She was hitting the same nail with the same leaden tongue, mm-hmm. and nothing was coming of it. Mm-hmm. Do you see a program representative of Jewish humor on television? No, but I'm not
1: much of a TV fan, mm-hmm. so I'm probably the wrong person to ask.
0: A place for it on radio?
1: I listen to NPR, talk radio. Okay. So wrong person to ask. Wish I did, but don't have it. So
0: academics are not humorous.
1: Oh, academics are a okay. scream. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go with that if you will.
1: Then. <laughs> well, academics who are able to laugh at themselves are funny because so many of them are so pretentious and egotistical. And um, it's trying to get a bunch of academics to agree to something is like, as they say, herding cats, because you're trying to get a bunch of ego-driven people to go beyond themselves and be part of of a group.
0: There's an old story that a horse is a donkey put together by historians. (laughs) So, I guess in point of fact, there's an element of truth in all of this. (laughs) We're within two minutes of the end of this marvelous program, and hopefully— I can tender an invitation to return at a later date Sure, and continue. Can you share your future plans with the listening audience?
1: Um, I I would like to delve more deeply into the roots of anti-Semitism. I feel as if, even though this is a topic that um, people will not necessarily flock to lectures on, as they do when I talk about Jewish humor, um, I feel as if people don't quite understand how deeply ingrained anti-Semitism is in some cultures. And I think, as in 1938, when students look back at those years and they say, well, how could the Germans just want to get rid of the Jews? That's crazy. They're citizens. If you look historically, of course, you see that this has happened over and over and over again throughout history. And I would like to go back and look at some of the reasons that this happened and also relate it in the larger sphere to um, people who are filled with hatred for other groups of people also. So look at it in the larger frame of genocide. I think there's a great deal to be understood from that that could help in today's world.
0: You feel then, and we're within a minute and some odd seconds of the end, that it is mankind's original sin?
1: I do feel as if it's ingrained in us in the same way that the German movie that came out two years ago called Look Who's Back had Hitler waking up in 1945, and when they tried to kill him, he was shot, he fell over, he jumped up again, and he said, you can't kill me, I'm in all of you.
0: I would think perhaps we can end with that thought in that we look for evil in others, but perhaps all of us should look for it in the mirror in our own reflective process. Hopefully there's a peace and tranquility at the end of the game, and hopefully if we play the cards right, we'll come up aces and eights. But in point of fact, this has been enjoyable. It's been a dance that's pleasurable. It's been knowledgeable, and we hope to do it again. This has been seldom said. My name is Robert.